good morning also from my side. Uh, I'm very excited about this panel, you know, because uh, yesterday I had this role of like, uh, ooh, it's hard, right? But now we need to talk about, you know, what we are actually achieving in, in cities. You know, it's, it's, uh, I love the presentation. You know, it's, uh, it's a very good message of hope, I would say, you know, in the sense that when cities get their act together and work properly, things can actually happen over there. So that's very, very exciting. And, uh, and yeah, today we are talking about operating in cities, right? So what's going on? Authorizations, enablers, uh, again, good examples of before, uh, and roadblocks, because we still have many of them. Uh, we have a, a, great, uh, a great panel. I am very excited about uh, the panelists themselves. So we'll, let's do a quick uh, round of introduction, uh, everybody. We can start with you, uh, Danik, and then, uh, then we get going. Please. Okay, yeah, thank you, Lorenzo. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here as well, to be able to talk about these uh, things. You can see that um, uh, my role within Austro Control, which is the Austrian CAA and ANSP at the same time, which has also a whole bunch of uh, challenges, but also opportunities linked to that, that were the same um, entity, um, is UTM coordinator. So this is a big statement also from uh, from my company because it means you know we want to go the route of UTM we want to enable this drone ecosystem and we want to do it through a digital ATM system that's what it means uh, from a purely textual point of view but when I got there about a year ago um, coming back from as you can see on the slide more of a research background so I'm mostly focused on R&D related to ATM UTM integration and uh, I was uh, working in CESAR-related projects for U-Space and this whole U-Space eco ecosystem that's uh, being discussed and also hopefully implemented in the near future. That's where I came from. And uh, it really resonated with me what you said yesterday, Lorenzo, this sort of feeling that in particular what I had from research where, you know, everything is possible and uh, we, it's, people were excited to, to get something like this up and running. And then going into the CAA and being tasked to actually make it work, it's like being hit on the head with a, with a, a load of bricks <laughs> in, in some degree, because you really realize the challenges of, uh, of what we still have ahead. So my feeling was, okay, we should be more or less here and we want to go here with regards to UTM and it's going to be great. And then I realized after just a few months of working that actually the foundations in many areas to make something like this, the visions that we're discussing today work, um, are still running about here. So there's still a lot of work to do and I'm really excited to be on this panel to discuss uh, the challenges that uh, my other colleagues uh, are, are working with and trying to, to solve. Um, maybe just a few more words about uh, my company itself. So I'm with the Drone Competence Center in the CAA. Um, as you can see, we have roughly 50,000 registered uh, operators and we're working on a scale of magnitude of roughly about 150 specific authorizations and one LUC. So we're a small country. This, these aren't ginormous numbers. We can't compare this to larger uh, countries like the United States or, or the UK or, or some, um, some similar order of magnitude. Um, but even for us, having to deal with 50,000 new operators from, and many of whom don't really have any connection to the ATM environment or, or to aviation in general, um, that's been a huge set of challenges for us, for us to actually get those bare bones up and running and actually tell them what it is that they would need to consider now that they're actually in the airspace. So it's a, it's a huge challenge to just get the bare bones up and running, but uh, we're doing as best as we can. And one of the things that we've tried to start with is our new UTM system, which we just recently launched uh, a month ago, actually. And uh, we're learning as, as we go along. So I'm definitely uh, paying attention to my phone every now and then in case it's still running or not. So thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, Enda, please. Thank you. So uh, my name is Enda Walsh. I'm the US manager with the Irish Aviation Authority. So my role was created about two years ago to reflect the fact that drones in the whole industry is becoming more and more prominent. And since then, we've built up a team of four. And in line with the growing volume and complexity, we're hoping to double the size of that team now in the new year. Uh, we look after the open and specific category operations. The certified ops when they arrive in innovative aeromobility is handled by the traditional uh, flight ops department. And to reflect the importance of U-Space, we're now establishing a dedicated airspace and U-Space division in the new year as well. So we're adjusting and reacting to the industry, uh, which is good to see. Um, in terms of U-Space, we have one of the three new CESAR-funded Digital Sky demonstrators out of Shannon, Aero Air. We'd hope to see the first elements of that, serious elements, come to fruition by the end of next year. And in terms of operations, well, we've a I'm glad to say we have a wide variety of interesting operations from airborne wind energy to delivery companies, both business consumer and the likes of Man and Wing and B2B with medical deliveries. Um, we've uh, facilitated the testing of larger drones from south of Dublin as well. So it's, it, I love working in an industry every day. It's a great job. We see month on month an increase in both volume but also complexity of operations. We're about to issue our first sale three. And yeah, it makes for a very interesting and enjoyable career. So thank, thanks for having me today. Thank you, thank you, Enda. Thank you very much. Annalisa. Good morning, everyone. I'm Annalisa Abdullah. I work with the Maltese Civil Aviation Authority. Um, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers for having me here. It's been a fantastic day yesterday, and I'm also very much looking forward to today. The panels have been really interesting. Um, my background is in aerospace engineering. At the Multi Civil Aviation Authority, I'm responsible for drones, eVTOLs, UAM, AAM, and also recently information security because that's catching up as well. Though it's not very relevant, the relevance is less um, with respect to this event today. Um, with regards to drones, we have Obviously, fewer participants with um, registered operators and small tasks so small. At the moment, we're around 2,500 registered operators. Um, however, we also have two LUCs, which have been issued last year, and we have another two in the pipeline. So, And the number of SORAs as well we're getting for operations in the specific category is also um, ramping up. Um, that's it from my side, I think. Thank you very much. And so we have now the, the, the three authorities, and then we have Justin here representing you know, those who want to fly. So it's a, it's a tough job, Justin, but please go ahead. Yeah, my name is Justin Stanky. I'm the uh, Senior Vice President of Commercial Business at Sprite. Uh, Sprite, uh, I think Joe mentioned it uh, yesterday and, and gave a pretty good intro, but we're a global operator of drones. So we operate everything from small drones to larger drones. Uh, we were born out of Air Methods, which is a traditional uh, manned aviation business. So uh, about 99.9% .9 of everything Air Methods does is the transportation of people uh, in helicopters. So uh, operate about 450 helicopters across about 320 some odd bases across the United States. And uh, got into drones really to see how drones were going to, to help the industry. So uh, I was almost born a pilot. I've been flying my entire life. and. Uh, have spent the last uh, 12 years now trying to get pilots out of the aircraft and, and doing everything autonomously, which is a lot more fun. So uh, we have the, the really tough job of being able to pull all of this industry together and then go to the CAAs and try to get the authorizations to actually fly. So uh, we really strive very hard to just be an operator. That's really all we want to do. So we have 
drone partners and lots of partners in the audience here, uh, software partners. Uh, we have people like uh, Lorenzo and his team who help us with a lot of the authorizations and really trying to tuck all that together in a way that it actually meets the customer side of, of the business case. So I think the hardest part about my job, and hopefully we'll get into this today, is really you know not starting with the drone. That's how this industry likes to talk. Uh, but really starting with what the customer use case is and how you want to make that a reality. So uh, hospitals are uh, a fantastic opportunity for drones, but uh, hospitals usually reside right in the middle of a city and there's all these ancillary challenges that start really with that problem. So um, there's a lot of people who come up on stage and talk about the, the wonderful pilot programs, but you know, hopefully today we'll talk a little bit about uh, what that means down the line. So uh, we have customers who hand us hundreds of routes and say, go put drones here and, and make all that work. And that's really the hard part. You know, the first route's pretty easy. After that, it gets uh, much more challenging and, and much more difficult. So looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Justin. I mean, I'm going to start with you. Sorry, but it's, it's a classic here. Because, no, but the point is, is uh, you, you literally just mentioned, you know, the end users. I, I asked the question before to Rene the same story, like how do you how do you get this going? And you answer the same thing, you know, you need to show to the end user that there is a value in, in what we are proposing even before they even start the conversation. And for you, this means to fly, right? And, uh, and, and once you have flown maybe your initial POCs where I think we kind of learn now how to do, then they get excited. Like they say, yeah, we, we like that. And so you go in with this, I don't know, now you have 100 routes or, or you know, multiple play locations. And then again, you go and speak with these guys. Say, we need to get this approved. So what is the state of at the moment? How do you see this transition? Last year, we were still in POC time. I remember having this discussion here. We need to go out of POCs, right? I think this year, we are trying to get out of POCs. How do you see it going in in Europe, I, I would say also in the US if you want, but generally speaking, in the areas in which you operate. Yeah, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the US versus Europe. So um, obviously, we're a US company. Um, <laughs> most of us are, are based in the US. Uh, the US, though, from a business standpoint, is hard. It's obviously a big space. So geographically, the distances are much more challenging. So um, we've got partners like DeFore in the audience here who have aircraft that go much further. And that's really the size of aircraft that will make that business case work. So uh, if you talk about something as simple as lab samples, which you know a lot of our customers are trying to move, the average distance in the US is about 150 miles to make that business case actually work. So um, you know, we started in Europe very strategically because we have not only Sora and all of these processes that help us actually get authorizations, but because the business case works here, and that's that's a lot different. So, uh, to answer your question, though, I think one of the biggest challenges that we see is that transition from pilot program POC to to something more tangible. Um, we have customers who always start with something very simple. You know, they've got a vision for, for how they want to work with drones. On the medical side, you know, you have hospitals and you have labs, and those are really easy starting points. The business case makes sense. Uh, labs, for example, use turnaround time as their key metric. So if the drone can fly faster than the car, then you automatically win, and everybody's really happy. But the second you do that, they have something else you want to move, and then something else they want you to move, and then they want you to add pharmacy and durable medical equipment and all of these things. So your, your three kilograms gets up to 40 kilograms really fast, and that's the, the hardest part. So you know we're very unique as an operator because we're agnostic to the type of aircraft that we use, and our goal is always really to start with the use case. Um, to answer your question directly, the hardest part about this is that that scale moves very fast, 
And although there's a very good infrastructure here in Europe, it's also still very challenging to be able to get to that point. So if I can find one route from a hospital, but now I need to do a hub and spoke system with 10 routes, I'm absolutely gonna fly over populated areas. There's no way to avoid that. And so being able to find uh, even small drones that have gone through the design verification process for their parachute that allows me to take the minus four to be able to get down to a sale to operation, it doesn't exist yet. So uh, the, the CAAs and, and, and the people on the panel have done a phenomenal job to be able to enable this, but there's still a lot of industry challenges that are preventing us from getting to that scale that I think we're all looking for. Love the answer as a former regulator. This is a very good answer. And I agree with you. You know, it's, it's not always about regulators. The industry is not ready as well, right? And you know, it's very, very good. Uh, I mean, maybe uh, and, uh, on your side, I mean, you have operations ongoing, you know, uh, some of them not necessarily POCs or maybe larger scale POCs, right? But do you face the, do you face the pressure that I mean, Justin is highlighting, you know, this pressure of like, we want to go out of here and we want to start to fly for real, right? And for real means, location independent, for real means over people, for real means possibly not integrated, but possibly in controlled airspace, so higher higher arcs. Do you feel the pressure and how, I mean, you, you are writing for people, so obviously the answer is yes, but like, how, do you, how are you gearing up for that? Yeah, we do, we do feel the pressure, but it, 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 you're absolutely right. We're at that stage now where we're moving out of proof of concept and we want to see people flying uh, practically and profitably. And we're, tr we're starting to do that. So um, we're about to issue a set of sale three. I don't think they mind me saying that's going to Mana now tomorrow. Um, that's, well, utterly, that's true VV loss over not quite heavily populated, but suburban areas. So we're facilitating that. Part of that is the fact that, you know, it, it, regulation, we, we always listen to the industry. We feed it back up into EASA. EASA are responsive. The recent decision published by EASA made sale three operations far more achievable. That was a real blocker when that came out. We were able to facilitate that application. So we, we do listen. It's, uh, we're looking at the stats that you know, as we went on, we realized sale three wasn't quite maybe as risky as we thought. The, the DVR was too onerous, so that's been removed. So that facilitates these kinds of operations. Um, but yeah, you've mentioned the, like the means of compliance as a blocker, that's true. A lot of our operators, for example, operate under PDRS Tier 1, the smaller operators. You have the MOC for the flight termination system. That's been there for nearly two years now, but the manufacturers haven't caught up. There's very few that actually um, of those on the market. So these kind of standard blockers are difficult as well. But you have the Shepherd project, again, looking at industry standards, trying to identify it for operators. So again, that's the regulator trying to support you, trying to come back and say, okay, the regulator says X, Y, and Z standard. We've looked across them. These are the best ones. And trying to engage with manufacturers then to say, look, will you please test your equipment and make a compliance so we can start pushing the industry along. Excellent. And maybe Annalisa, from your side, you know, you have uh, issued two looks, uh, you know, and, and two are in the pipeline. So I think that's a pretty popular place, Malta, to for you know to to look at looks. So you need, you need, you have to some extent organizational experience with companies that want to do that, you know? And look, I think, is one of the essential pieces for, for scaling, right? Because it removes, with the right privileges, right? It removes the need of going continuously to authorities for permission for everything, you know? How do you see the look environment at the moment? And do you, I mean, you are approached by companies that are serious, obviously the one you issued looks. Do you, how do you see the seriousness of operators coming to you and do you think this is a good tool as well? Do you see enabling operation via look is another way of, of facilitating city operation? Yes, definitely. So um, for the, the look, I think it's important for the operator, 
because obviously it gives them the privilege to be able to authorize their own risk assessments up to the sale level we provide. Um, the year the, we issued the LUCs last year, uh, we issued them up to sale two, because as Enda was saying, like from sale three, you need a DVR, at the time you needed a DVR. So without that, it was up to sale two, and that is what we issued. Um, then we got some direction from EASA that with the operators, we should, if they have no operational experience, even if though they're, for example, the employees already have experience in other aviation roles, if the company per se does not have sufficient operational experience, then you should issue with no privileges and increase them as you gain confidence in the operations of the operator. Um, the two we issued were Swiss Drones and Dronemics, who have also set up offices in Malta. Um, with regards to Swiss Drones, they already had some operational experience in other European member states. Um, and Dronemics, they're ramping up their experience in testing, in the testing phase, so it's not commercial yet. Um, and we also have another two in the pipeline, which are being issued in line with the EASA current recommendations of no privileges and then gaining confidence and then giving them privileges. I think one of the most important things in the LUC, um, in granting an LUC, besides the actual operational experience, is also the management system. So from there you can gauge how serious an operator is based on the quality of the documentation and you also need to audit and carry out um, inspections to see that they're actually operating in line with what they state in their manuals. Excellent point, the management system, it's a, it's a classic, comes back, but it's, it's super important. And we always say, you know, with two companies that are approaching authorities, you know, you get gauged based on the quality of the documentation you provide, right? So sometimes for, for startups, for companies, that documentation is the last thing you want to do. You're focused on the product, right? But the reality is when you approach an authority, even to get authorization, basically the only thing that they see of you is the documentation, right? So it's almost 100%, 180 degrees flipped over, and many don't get this point, right? So you go in with kind of like a, a proof of concept <laughs> or a minimum viable product documentation and that kind of like slows you down quite a bit in the process of getting authorization. So it's a good message, thank you for that. Exactly, I think um, actually the first impression we get of the operator is from the quality of the documentation they provide and the contents of the safety management manual and the operations manual kind of state everything. But having a really good safety management system is crucial because even with no privileges, it actually provides the framework so that as you increase privileges, you don't really need to change a lot if that is already good. So I think that is a crucial foundation for any scale of operations and any say level. Excellent. And that you wanted to add something? Well, that was pretty much it, so I wasn't going to come back in. No, but I was just going to say that, yeah, the documentation is the first thing we see from many uh, operators, but those that are coming requesting LUCs tend to be quite mature anyway. They're coming with... Uh, quite a good SMS in place, unlike maybe some of the people coming at the lower levels, but at the LUC level, certainly, they come with a, a high level of maturity. I find the level of documentation is, is very good these days. A, a lot of it's down to people like yourself working with companies. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, quick question now on you, not so quick, but, you know, like, we, di we didn't talk airspace so far, right? We, we're talking about, you know, uh, ground risk, of course, operator get the look for sale too. 
and generally speaking, sale two in terms of airspace is, is relatively limited, right? You, you still have uh, you know a lot of limitations. And I always imagine you know, ground risk or airspace risk is just like red and green zone on a map, right? So if I can go from little airspace to more airspace, I basically have more areas that I can fly, right? And more areas that I can fly means more addressable market, it means more business, et cetera, et cetera, right? And in Europe, one of the decisions we take right or wrong is that to allow this expansion, UTM, U-space would be one of the answers, right? So take away some of the air risk from the operators directly and manage this almost at state level, you know, by, by making sure that the system is available for the operators to use. Now, how are we with that? Uh, in your experience, not only in Austria, but in general, how do you think this is going? And if it's going well, okay. If it's not going well, what do you think we can do to improve? Uh, with the, again, with the goal to open airspace for operators to, to fly into. Well, in terms of uh, U-space uh, versus UTM question, or in general, the, I liked yesterday the, the panel that we had where it was, came up pretty clear that at the beginning this needs to be, it's an, it's an infrastructure, right? It's a digital infrastructure to facilitate the scaling of the operations uh, that we would like to do, and you provide the necessary information uh, in order to for operators to make a more ad hoc uh, assessments or, or at least base them on the same ground so that you can reduce both your ground and air risk based on on digital data and with regards to u space for instance i i did find it uh very promising that in europe we already have a u space regulation so it, it the fundamentals are there it's uh, there's been a lot of uh, background research, this is where, where I was coming from, uh, done towards, okay, how can we get this ecosystem to work? How should, it, uh, how should do the individual services work with each other? What kind of services are even necessary? Um, on the flip side of that, though, what I learned, especially now going into the CAA, is that um, CAA seems to be very good at finding the loopholes and things, right? So, um, in particular, it might also be a bit more of a cultural thing that I've experienced in Austria, but it's a bit more of a conservative approach towards these types of innovations. And in particular, they're very quick to point out what doesn't work <laughs> with it, and, and uh, to the point of, well, this is this is never going to work. It's too complex, or it's it's too costly, or uh, who's going to pay for it, or we're going to just open up the airspace to whomever. Um, so there's still a lot of questions to be addressed there, uh, and I think the the golden goose somewhere is, is, is somewhere in the middle. I would assume, like the, it provides a framework. Uh, we're Constantly, also, it's constantly being reevaluated, redesigned, and it will grow uh, the concept of, uh, of use space. At the same time, and this is why we've also not yet fully com committed to saying we're going to approach it as a use space project, but for the time being, just a UTM project, is because we've realized in order to have such an ecosystem work at scale, you first need to actually get everyone on board. Uh, and for us, this is a really incremental approach, and we said, okay, we have this vision. It aligns with where we want to go, the full integration of both drones and the traditional aviation that we have. But let's first have a look at what the current challenges are to even get us, what I was saying before, from this level to the, the starting point where use space really starts to make sense. And so the approach that we've taken for now is really to first uh, take load off of the air traffic controller for the actual flight authorization so we've deployed it in particular uh, in control zones to mitigate we've been doing drone authorizations through phone calls so really they, they were really disturbing our air traffic controllers now we're digitizing uh, this whole concept and getting people used to submitting flight plans getting people educated towards what it 
is necessary uh, or what level of professionalism is necessary to be working in, in an ATM environment because essentially that's, that's where it's going. Uh, at the same time, of course, we're very much aware of many of the challenges regarding uh, UTM that still need to be addressed. Uh, for us in particular, and I would assume in Switzerland it's the same issue since it's a very mountainous country, the issue of above ground level operations versus uh, MSL operations that we have or barometric altitude operations in traditional aviation are, are, are quite substantial. If someone wants to fly from a mountain top, well, 50 meters AGL is, is quite high. <laughs> so um, this is uh, definitely a big challenge for us. So what are the underlying data models? Uh, what is the terrain model that you would need to use to facilitate the information? Who provides the information? How is it standardized? Uh, so there's still a whole bunch of questions that we would like to hope to address. And so I'm also very curious about uh, the discussions that we've had already yesterday and hopefully today as well uh, regarding how we can work together to, to build up this ecosystem. Um, but I think we're, to answer your question in a short summary, I, I think we're on a good track. Uh, I do really buy into the, the use space vision of having this at some point even perhaps go towards uh, the ATM side and, and, and expand in a way that could uh, could really open up a lot of opportunities. But the road to get there, uh, I was lear I learned it the hard way as well, is, is still quite quite steep. So, Thanks, thank you very much. And uh, I want to go back to Justin uh, as, a, as a direct follow-up from this question. I think I remember talking with you a few years ago, I mean, and you were telling, I, I don't need UTM. I mean, like, I, I, can, I can do what I need to do right now, you know, in absence of UTM, and it's fine, right? And I think it's true, like, for, for many operations, this, uh, I think it's this still the case today. Uh, question that I wanted to ask you is, do you, do you start to see the need, right? And most importantly, how are we as an industry, I'm coming back to Marcel's point yesterday, it was excellent, like, how are we going to create the political pressure needed for, I don't know, to, to go and, and do the work, you know, and, and deploy that? You know? Do you see this pressure coming? Would you be putting this pressure association-wide? How do you see this problem? I probably have a number of unpopular opinions on this, so um, I think. I love, uh, I love it. This is what yeah, I, you know, I get to wear a couple different hats. So obviously, you know, being an apparent company that operates all these helicopters, you know, that's that's always the one thing everyone brings up. What about the medical helicopter? What about the helicopter that you know has to fly somebody and, and is you know all of a sudden in your flight route? And we think about this all the time. So you know, looking at this from a U.S. perspective, you know, back to your comment on, on UTM. You know, the U.S. has kind of lost sight of what UTM is, right? So we, we actually got a call from the FAA the other day about a project, and they said, we want you to collaborate with a UTM. And I said, well, define UTM. What does that mean? Because it used to mean something, and it means something here in Europe, but it certainly does not mean the same thing in, uh, in the States. So um, we're not doing tactical deconfliction. We're not doing all of these things that we talked about when, when NASA was in charge of it a long time ago. Um, but we certainly see the need to, to be able to collaborate with the other stakeholders in the environment. So from a, from a Sprite perspective, we understand that the challenge of, you know, having manned aircraft and unmanned aircraft all in the same space. Um, we, on the drone side, are flying medical samples where, you know, truthfully, if it doesn't get there, it's a problem. It's not an emergency, but it's a problem. And on the flip side, you've got helicopters where you could have somebody who's very severely injured in the back, and guess what? The pilot's not looking for drones. That's just not what's happening. Um, and, and that's the biggest challenge with that. But um, from our perspective, there has to be some way to be able to collaborate. So we've taken kind of two approaches to this. We do believe that equipage is really important. Um, you know, those pilots are watching their TCAS. They do see what's around them. They do have ADS-B. We, you know, we've complied with all of that. 
Um, but to the digital side of this, you know, one of the projects that we started in the U.S. that we will replicate in all the countries that we operate in is that we've got a, a technical assist program directly with the FAA and our own project management with the FAA uh, to basically build out uh, what we're calling the Remote Operational Control Center. And our intent with this is to be able to establish an airworthiness directive of how others can do the same thing we're doing because we want to give guidance to the rest of the industry. So about 20 years ago, the FAA said, we're tired of helicopters. And this was the same thing that they're doing with drones now. So it's a bit comical. But um, at the end of the day, they were like, you're low level. You're not really in our scope. And when you are, it's annoying. We don't want you here. So what we were going to do is say, you guys go manage yourselves, right? So they established the Operational Control Center construct, the OCC. Anybody with more than 10 aircraft had to have their own OCC. And so we went back to the FAA a couple years ago and said, listen, you guys already did this. We've been down this road already. There's actually a construct, there's a set of rules that everybody follows with helicopters. So from a digital perspective, instead of chasing UTM the way it's been chased, we have OCCs all over the country and Sprite also has one. So we'll connect the data on the back end of that and make sure that everybody's collaborating. So, you know, from, from a U.S. perspective, we've got lots of BB loss waivers. Some of them go as far as 30 or 40 miles, which is really fun. Um, and we have to go talk to every stakeholder along the way, and that doesn't work, right? Um, that's, that's not scalable in my, my perspective. So uh, being able to connect this both digitally and to be able to have equipage on the aircraft is really the easiest, shortest putt in all of this. Um, I think, you know, uh, there was a panel yesterday, we were talking about use space, and use space has lots of potential. It sounds like it's also very hard to implement. So I think it'll be a layered approach, and that's the way that we see it, and we hope that that continues. Um, but I think, you know, looking around the world and the fact that we're in as many countries as we are, equipage seems to be the easiest way to start this, and the digital side needs to follow very shortly thereafter. Excellent. I mean, in the U.S. you have 978, right? So that helps as well right? in terms of ADS-B. We are more challenged on that. But, uh, yeah, it's a good point. I think you go... But one thing that I wanted, maybe coming back to, 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 to the astro control situation, like when you speak about the key page, OCC, and all of that, you are going straight for integration to some extent, right? Because that allows to fly together with the helicopters without any need of a different airspace with different rules. Like, this is correct. That's correct. Yep. All right. And yeah, because we, we don't segment airspace in the U.S., right? So that's yeah. the difference, right? So there's no uh, segmented airspace. Exactly, exactly. So how do you see that, just quickly? Um, I, I do second that approach, because in the end, the, the more professional drone companies uh, develop themselves, in particular in terms of equipage, like these exact discussions about uh, helicopter associations and so on, we've, we've had as well. Like they're a, a big stakeholder in particular in Vienna, which is the major city that does have the largest potential for drone-related services because we get most of the authorizations there. But also we have a huge number of uh, emergency helicopter services flying very low. And th their approach has also always been, well, we need some equipment in the helicopter so that we can see it. Um, but the issue that we have is that uh, it's not just professional companies that we're dealing with that are able or have the funds to implement these types of systems on their drones. We have a whole bunch of uh, operations which are in the open category as well, flying up to, of course, 120 meters max, but still, for an emergency helicopter, that can be potentially an issue. Um, and since they're, we don't have any means for the time being to make them conspicuous, conspicuous to manned uh, aviation in the traditional sense, we saw the need to look at least at both aspects. So the more we can start to professionalize or 
focus on can we standardize the equipment also required for drones to make it compatible. This is the direction that at some point we want to go because we're looking towards full integration and full visibility. Uh, but for the time being, we must also rely on just people telling where they are uh, on the system that we have. So we've been working together with uh, the helicopter operators in, in Vienna um, to solve that issue. Since it's a control zone, it makes it easier. We are now mandating the use of our system to plan flights or to authorize drone flights within the city. So after the, the CA authorization, the ANSP flight authorization to, to take off. And that is now integrated uh, into our two major uh, helicopter operators. So the, the police on the one hand and some emergency helicopters that we have on the other uh, side with their control centers. So they provide that information in flight planning. It's not real time, but at least it's a first step towards that. Um, but yeah, going forward, of course, it's uh, I think both both lines of approach have their have their merits, but as, as long as we don't decide for one or the other, I think we still have to work with a hybrid solution for now. Excellent. And as you can see, the Slido is live, so we invite uh, obviously questions, and I'm, I guess there are going to be a few with the, with even the, with the, the audience. So please go ahead and uh, you know log in into your Slido and and ask questions. I, I'll give you time by continuing a little bit on the conversation here. And I, I wanted to quickly uh, to go back to you, Annalisa, because you know Malta at the end of the day is a, is a small island, right? But uh, but there is a lot going on in the airspace as well, right? So when it comes to integrating into Malta, integrating drones, you have some large defense use drones, you have some other things. So how is this integration concept going in Malta specifically, given the, the peculiarities of, of the environment? And, uh, and what can you offer, like, a, as a, not necessarily as a solution, but in terms of lessons that you are learning in, in doing the work? Yes, in fact, this question fits in very nicely because I can um, continue with what Dominic was just saying. So Malta, as a very small island, and all of it is controlled airspace, we also face this challenge. Um, so we have implemented a system which we launched just before the launch of the EASA regulations where all drone flights need to be registered online on the system. So they give us the flight plan, the area, they give us the height at which they are flying, the date and time. And unless they are in restricted zones, um, the flights will be authorized automatically, but at least by the system, so it's immediate. But at least we have visibility of who is flying when and where. Um, if obviously there is a restricted zone, we need to see that the permission from the owner of the restricted zone. But this system also enables us, for example, if there is a helicopter or an emergency where you cannot fly drones, then all the registered drone flights in that area will receive an SMS notification that their area cannot be flown right now. So obviously we have no control over stopping the actual drone, but they receive notification that they shouldn't be flying. So I think this system works very well. We mandate it for everyone, basically, even if they're in the open category. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think the first question could be uh, already interesting to continue here. That uh, Do you work with cities in collaboration already, or is it still far away? I mean, we are now, uh, there is a level here that we are not necessarily covering, which is you fly in a city, the authorization obviously comes from, from the CAA, through mechanism that might be facilitated by the ANSPs, right, and, and or, or, or the CA directly, but but how, what is the role of the city in the operation? I, I want to ask you, Justin, and then coming to back to you and on the same topic, because I know Dublin again we discussed yesterday are pretty active. So how how is the city 
intervening, influencing, shaping, or even prohibiting, if I want to go on the way, you know, operations that you are involved with, Justin. And yeah, it's a good question. I'll, I'll kind of give a real story behind this. So we've got uh, an operation actually in Germany. There was a, a doctor up here yesterday was talking about pathology in Germany. It's actually a really big challenge. And so we've got a, a customer there who uh, wants us to fly tissue samples, very, very small. And this is uh, basically a tissue sample that's being derived during a surgery to remove a cancerous tumor every single time. And so we, we, because we start with the customer, are always working with the cities and the hospitals and the folks that are in that area. And one of the challenges that we've had, and one of the things I think um, is, is pertinent to this conversation, is making sure that we are a good bridge between that city and the CAA, the importance of what this use case is and why. And in this particular example, you know, they, they do these cancer surgeries almost every day. Uh, they're scheduled, so they're easy scheduled flights. So from an authorization perspective, it's fairly straightforward. Um, however, those um, pathologists are missing in Germany right now. And so if we can't get that sample there by drone, there's no other way to do it. And that's the hardest thing. So the city is relying on this technology to be able to make this happen. And it also accounts for 50% of the revenue for that hospital all over the country. And so the cities, you know, come to people like us all the time and say, hey, we really need this to happen because otherwise the hospital shuts down and that that's what will end up with that. So, um, you know, to kind of echo what Joe was saying yesterday, you know, we talk a lot about drones and the technology. We talk about UTM, we talk about airspace, but really pulling all these stakeholders together to show the importance of this is, I think, you know, part of the challenge. So to answer the question, yes, this is happening in cities and it is really exciting. Um, but it's also really challenging and very daunting because as an operator, you know, we're faced with these kind of conversations all the time. Like, hey, if you guys can't make this work, then, you know, this hospital has real financial problems and we've got we've to solve that. So um, I think part of uh, what we see as an opportunity, though, is to try and do a better job or continue to do what we can to, to share that message across and make sure that the important side of that is, is seen on all sides of it. It's amazing, uh, super interesting answer because I'm thinking about, you know, a, an operator such as Sprite starting to act as a, as a line of communication like between the city and, and the CAA, like you are the one going up and say, hey, if we don't approve this operation, that hospital is going to shut down, right? I'm not so sure that that's the role that, that you know, you need to play it by necessity, right? But I'm sure there's going to be a better way to communicate. And I mean, I think Ireland is moving in that direction as well. So how, how are you avoiding that is just has to come to you and say, hey, in Dublin, the hospital is going to shut down unless you move, right? What, what is the government do here doing? Yeah, I think if, if uh, drones and, and use space in particular saw us anything, it's, it's the, the huge increase in stakeholders and right the way down to local government. And thankfully in Ireland, there's been huge uptake by all the cities and local governments across the state, both in their own drone use but also in their own interest in developing drone policy. And you had Eileen speaking yesterday from Dublin City Council, one of our, possibly the largest uh, in the state, and they've been fantastic in leading the way and sharing their experiences with the other local governments. She put up some of the, the guidance documents, she's developed that around data protection and the use of drones and so on. So we have um, the, the civil defense units utilizing drones for uh, body searches, for example, the, the fire departments using drones, um, if Tom, they're utilizing for service on bridges and, and so on. So the drone usage of governments has been fantastic and they've, they've expanded that year on year. Uh, but also we're now entering a partnership agreement with Open City Council on drone innovation, looking how we can develop policy hand in hand with the city on 
looking at their, their planning cycles, for example, and looking at vertiboards and how we should implement geozones for noise and, and privacy. So we're not doing this in isolation. We're going hand in hand with local government, and that's essential. It's great to see you helping cities communicate with the regulators, but we need to be communicating directly. We shouldn't exactly. be relying that's, on the operator. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, let's continue on the on the question a bit, and then uh, you know we go another round. So uh, there is always this uh, this topic about uh, business model around UTM, how is it finances, who should pay for it. We heard a bit about yesterday. I, I would I would spin a little bit the question in in the context of authorization, right, and 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 the context of like if if UTM or a keypage or whatever it is required here is a key enabler, right, for for obtaining an authorization. Is this something that the people that are asking for authorization has to pay for? Is it something that the society has to pay for? Is it, you know, how do you see this going forward? Because clearly there is not enough money right now in the system to pay for it, right? So somebody else, then the company has to pay. But how is the business model in your mind, maybe I go to you, how is it today and how is it gonna evolve in the future? Well, uh, for the time being to set up the system that we've have, we've actually based ourselves on uh, public funding. So this is actually an innovation project that funded most of the work that we've done so far. Um, it's That is also definitely not uh, scalable, but I agree with the, the uh, or what was mentioned yesterday, I think also in the Q&A panel, that uh, at least at the beginning, it must be something that the, the local government needs to support if they want to get it to work. It's um, You're setting up an infrastructure so that the market the market, which in our opinion is the actual use case being done by the drone and not necessarily the services that are provided, at least not yet. At some point, uh, once that becomes so sophisticated that there is even more benefit to be had from providing the services as well and charging for them. Of course, I do see that that could also be a market development, but at least for the initial development of, of UTM, I think this is something that really the, the government or the, the, the state has to say, okay, we want this to happen. This is our key facilitator, our infrastructure that we want to put in place for it to work, and we will provide the necessary funding for at least the bare bones type uh, of operation. On the other hand, we, we do see quite a willingness uh, in our operators to to actually pay to fly legally, to be honest, uh, it's 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 very uh, surprising. I was surprised by the um, like the, the lengths uh, people are going to to get their authorizations and the amount of money they're putting into to these authorizations, because of the potential that it has uh, for them. Uh, so there is definitely, I think, from an operator side, also. Uh, th there's a market behind this, so we're not quite sure yet in which area it's going to develop, but we've been talking about this also also yesterday, that there is potential there, and you're seeing that come up a bit, in at least in the operators that we have in their niches that they're working with, because it's still a lot cheaper than to send someone up or to close down uh, an, uh, an area uh, for an entire day if you can just use a drone, uh, and it's, it's still cheaper in that regard. But um, yeah, in terms of the UTM ecosystem itself, I think the financing of any infrastructure, at least at the beginning, must be uh, done uh, through public funding. And uh, as a follow-up question on this, I think I'm going to ask you three the same question here. It's like if you want public money, and again, I go back to Marcel, you know, you need to have political pressure applied to get it. Otherwise, it's going to be applied, it's going to be given to somebody else, right? Do you individually in your states see sufficient amount of pressure that allows you to do what you need to do in the case of, I know, UTM, build the UTM or hire the people. Do you see this pressure increasing, decreasing over time? Is the industry doing a good job in your individual case in applying this pressure or, or not? And if not, what needs to change? Maybe I start with Annalisa and we go this way. Um, 
I think in our case, it really depends obviously on the number of use cases you get. So at the moment, although we have a few um, interested parties who are interested in drone operations using UTM, I think it's very sporadic. So it doesn't quite justify setting up the whole UTM network. So that would obviously affect the funding that's available even um, from public funding, because obviously there needs to be a need to justify it. Thank you, thank you. Enda? Um, yeah, so we, as I said, we have the CESAR funded project, but that, that aside, um, we, yeah, there is some pressure from industry and the, the larger industry partners are very good for getting involved in the organizations and like through JEDA and, uh, and applying that in general. Um, and we'll move from shortly publishing a UAS policy framework for the state into looking to develop a, a UTM policy framework. So that, that's the starting point on looking at how we might fund that going forward. But I pivot up that to say that, you know, yes, UTM is essential in the longer term, but it sh we shouldn't be waiting for that to, to, to do the more complex operations. It's, it's not needed everywhere. You, know, you can facilitate PV loss linear inspections, for example, because it's low level and there's a very low chance of encounter with manned aircraft, you know, the equipage solutions as you talk to. So we shouldn't become myopic and just focus in on that. L look at other ways to enable the more complex operations as well. Excellent. We'll talk about that, but first. Yeah, in, in our case, uh, we, I have the feeling that we're a bit, um, which is sort of the role also of the CAA, but in this regard, it's, uh, we're a bit of in the bottleneck between uh, this type of pressure, so to speak. So we do see a lot of pressure from our drone operators. They just want to be able to use the airspace and fly. We have also a lot of um, work with them to, 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 to get that uh, authorization. At the same time, we're, we're f almost fighting amongst ourselves or even within our, uh, our traditional airspace environment, uh, convincing uh, the other, our own stakeholders, so to speak, uh, the, the added benefit or, or the necessity to, to expand this. So we're actually the ones sort of providing the impetus uh, or the pressure outwards uh, to, to, to action or to organization. Uh, and I hope that at some point this will actually resonate and then will come the other way as well so that it's not purely on us, but yeah. Excellent, and go ahead. Yeah, one just thought here. I mean, from a different perspective, one thing I always try to say on these panels is that we, we as Sprite need more competition. We need more operators. And I think that uh, most of the, the CAAs take a bad rap, including the FAA that I beat up all the time, uh, mainly because there's not enough people doing it. And that's the hardest part. When you talk about how to com uh, you know, monetize UTM, you need a lot of stakeholders and participants to be a part of that system. And uh, I can only imagine, you know, um, and we work with Enden and has been phenomenal to work with, but I can't imagine how many applications they get that are not even remotely close to what's, what's been expected, right? So, you know, that's the hardest part. That's where all the time goes on both sides. So uh, I think the industry as a whole needs more operators. We need more people buying the drones. We need more people who have, you know, an aviation background to be able to submit the documentation, and that will facilitate the, the growth of the services that will drive the UTM. So I still think there's a shortage in that side of it. I very much agree with that. There's music to my ears. But uh, I wanted to, uh, before continuing as I, uh, on, the, on the question, one thing that I wanted to cover, we covered a little bit the, the aspect of airspace integration, UTM or not, you know, equipage, et cetera. I think it's pretty clear. Like, I mean, you summarized it quite well. And, uh, you know, you don't need to wait for UTM use space to go online to start to do good things. There are a lot of business cases, use cases that exist that can be done. On the flip side, if you want to have a use space at any time in the future, you got to start now because it, it's not something that is built in a day, right? It's a complex 
digital infrastructure that needs time, money, investments, and if you don't start, you're never going to get to the end, right? So I think they have this parallel world of enabling operations with other means, right, while equipping ourselves with the proper, you know, the system for the future. So I think that kind of covers the airspace in, 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 in the situation. What about the ground? I mean, coming back to Justin a little bit, like uh, in terms of ground risk, in terms of routes, in terms of what you need to do to get a route approved, you know, what are the improvements that you think could really facilitate, make your job better on that front? Those, you're, you're keep cornering me with these unpopular questions. So, the, uh, no, it's a good one, though. I think the, the hard part is the technology is still not there, right? So, at the end of the day, you know, drones started as toys. And so, you still have a lot of toy parts being put into, you know, professional platforms and trying to, to go into the airspace and operate with, with manned aircraft. And that's still a hard thing to do. So, you know, we've really been around the world looking at every aircraft. And it's, you know, we, we try to tout all the time that we're an aviation company that's starting to use drones, not a technology company company trying to be an aviation business. That's a hard thing to do. And I think, you know, from a, if, if I were a regulator, I would be pushing back on the industry a lot to say that, you know, you want to fly over populated people areas, you want to fly over roads, you want to do all these things. But, you know, these these parts, you know, they might have a 25-hour failure mode or 2,000 hours, right? So there's no consistency there. So I think the drive towards, you know, the design verification process and some of these things that will put data to these metrics will, will really open that up and enable it. So, you know, the short answer to your question is that it's hard because it should be right now, and that's that's the, the probably the unpopular side of it. Um, but I think, you know, we, we've already shown a path, and people like, you know, the IAA have done a phenomenal job of, you know, We'll, we'll look at everything, and we'll uh, we'll help you get there if you if you need help. And I've always heard good things about Malta as well. So, <laughs> yes, no, I, I mean I, I like the sentence. It's hard because it should be. I mean, it's the, to some extent is the truth, right? You, you know, you can get other eyes and then you know crash. It'll take one accident to shut all this down, right? Yeah. That's what we're all hoping doesn't happen. So yeah, that's very good. And the. And uh, do you, uh, in terms of authorizations, ground risk, you know, now moving to sale three, but generally speaking, you know, what are you seeing as being the, the key enablers to, to open more, more ground, ground? I mean, of course, sale three now without DV, it's kind of easy because the responsibility goes to the operator or the manufacturer in this case, and you are good to go, but like still. Yeah, well, I think this, the SOAR framework is excellent, and with 2.5 coming out as well, we get a more, lot more uh, quantitative approach to it. But it, it allows you a, a lot of options. As you said, you, you can work on the reliability of the craft. You, you have the M1 mitigation there. EASA had the recent survey on using population density. We have, I know we have mobile telephony people here that are selling that kind of information. Um, one of our operators, for example, in a suburban area, we're looking at the, uh, the transit of the population at different times of the day and what areas they'd have to block out. So there's a lot of flexibility in the sort of framework to operate over what might be initially perceived as quite a populated area, but when you look at the population flow and the times of the day, you, you can make that feasible. And, and you are leveraging this, right? So yeah. you, you are using these and allowing operators to, to make this claim. This well, it's, it's, it's permitted under the regulation, so we're open to all these proposals and we've utilized them. I think that's crucial because, I mean, not everybody's as open as you are, right? And it's one of the complaints you hear when you go around in Europe and say there is there is a need to harmonize the way authorities interpret those regulations because you say, yeah, I can use all of these tools, and somebody else says, there is a house there, it's populated area, you know, and, and that's an end game, you know, like, but it's only a house. 
So the, the well, question the is sheltering factor as well. But there's a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work being what's done. What's going on between authorities? How? Yeah, well, we have the the US Technical Advisory Board that we we meet regularly, and we've all the task force falling out of that. And one of the most, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the busiest task force is the harmonisation task force because we're we're trying to solve that. You shouldn't be shopping around states. No matter where you go in Europe, it should be the same. And there's a lot of a lot of work gone into that, and rightfully so. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe one last question from the audience, and then uh, and then we can close the, close the panel. Um, do you see a need of differentiation in regulation between volume logistics versus priority medical cargo? I think this goes. I'm not so sure if it's regulation is a generic word. Let's make it more precise. You could go into like SERA and rules of the air. Like, I mean, do you do you want to create priority of flight for? I don't know, medical over, over logistics. And you can expand to that and say, what about the drone that carry medical over, I don't know, Piper Cup doing an off-field landing? You know, how, how do you prioritize that? Maybe it's a good one question to you and then maybe... Yeah, it, it is. And actually, um, I'm, I'm, now I'm taking a different hat. I'm taking the hat of the researcher because that's uh, uh, actually the question that I've come up with uh, working with our traffic controllers as, as part of the integration uh, work that we were doing. Um, what I found really curious, going towards more rules of the air and, and not necessarily uh, regulation, uh, but uh, we, we put controllers into a situation where um, there was high priority medical drones, simulated of course, uh, mixed into uh, a traffic of, of manned aircrafts, uh, VFR traffic circuits and so on in, in the airspace, uh, and uh, normal standard priority drones. And across the board, uh, their approach was, well, this is medical, this should have priority over someone doing a training flight. So you really have, like, thinking of rules of the air, all of a sudden, uh, this drone, which uh, in current operating methods always needs to evade any kind of manned aircraft, they would give that, because of the mission, that it has a higher priority than a manned aircraft in a Cessna uh, doing traffic circuits. So um, it's... This whole question of rules of the air, I think, is a really important one, uh, and it's something that we haven't really touched in research at all because we we want, or at least at the beginning, my feeling from use space is let's, let's see these things as two black boxes because we really don't want to touch the ATM side, right? <laughs> because they they could get uh, uh, they could get angry or they 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 could put up a lot of resistance, but just by talking to, to air traffic controllers or, or the general aviation community in general, I've I've actually gotten other type of feedback as well and one of those which was really surprising to me was their willingness to say well of course this is a medical drone it should have priority over over manned aircraft so uh, this is a very excellent question and I think there's still a lot of research uh, to be done or experiments to be done regarding rules of the air for integration of drones into the existing airspace system and how we can make that work excellent thank you very much so in conclusion the way I see this is like uh, I think that compared to last year there is a lot of progress in actual operations in cities. Like, we, we clearly see that, you know. Maybe cities might not be fully ready, not all cities might be fully ready for what's coming into them, but clearly from a regulator's point of view, an operator's point of view, there is progress. I think both on the, on the ground risk front and to some extent on the air risk front, I think this progress is, is sense, it's clear, and we are moving out of these uh, proof of concepts into real operations with challenges, of course, to be addressed, but I, mean, I think with a lot of optimism that this can actually be achieved. So thank you very much uh, to the panelists for this exciting conversation, and thanks for the question. And uh, yeah, see you around.